Thank you all for being here as always, and it's just, I just love being here. And I just wanted to give a little short announcement myself of if, if you are newer here, if you've just recently started coming, if this is your first time or even been coming for the past month or so, and we really want to get connected with you and help you get connected more and more in the church. And so on the bottom of your bulletin, on the back side of it, it you can actually tear it off. Feel free to give whatever information you're comfortable giving in that, and then take it to the welcome table, and we have a gift for anyone that's newer that comes and re- gives that information to us. And then this next week, Matt or I or one of us or somebody will follow up in the next week or two at least and help you get more connected here in the church because um, that's our desire. We d- desire connectedness. That's one of our main things. And you'll find that out when you come to the intro to Stonebridge next week. You'll find out our values. So um, today we'll be continuing our series through the book of Acts, looking at the main topic again and again of witnessing. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 6 or open up your app to Acts chapter 6. That's what we'll be starting at least today. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to kind of say, today's chapter shows us one of the greatest witnesses for Jesus in the New Testament. And and honestly, an, an unexpected witness. Someone that wasn't necessarily somebody that we would think of standing up and being a witness for Christ. And as I thought about this and I prepared for this, I... I got to thinking of an illustration, and I heard a story this past week of, some, of this happening in our church, someone being a witness, and maybe a story of an unexpected witness. And so Monday afternoon, every Monday afternoon, Matt, Shane, Stacy, and I have staff meeting. And the big purpose of it is just to try and get everything on page, like just to figure out what all's going on, all the ministries in the church and the events, and just so we can all be on the same page, talking through the sermon and talking through the service and just everything. But Matt also does just a really incredible job of making sure that this isn't just a business meeting, because it can be that way, you know, it's just treating church as a business. So Matt makes sure that that doesn't happen. So he introduces different things every week, different devotional aspects every week. And this week, he just simply asked the question, how have any of us seen God moving over this past week? We all started sharing different stories. And then Stacy shared a story that I felt was a direct illustration for this passage. She talked about how she was at Walmart the week before. And she was just there just picking up supplies for the church. For those of you who don't know, actually, Stacy is our administrative assistant. And so she was there just picking up supplies for the church. And so she pulls out her, our tax-exempt ID card to, so we don't have to pay taxes, praise God. Um, she pulled that out and gave it to the cashier, and the cashier looked at it and saw that it said Stonebridge Church across the top of it. And the lady instantly opened up. I was like, Stonebridge Church, I need your guys' prayers. And started just dumping all of her challenges on Stacy right there in the cashier, right there in the checkout line. At this point, Stacy could have simply said, absolutely, I will do that. I'll go back to my church. I'll tell my pastors to pray for you. And I guarantee this woman would have been completely happy with that. Probably just filled with joy knowing that this woman is going to go back to a church and tell the pastors. But Stacy felt 
the Spirit leading her. And so she asked if she could pray for that woman right there and then in the checkout lane. I am sure she was nervous. I am sure she had second thoughts. I'm sure she's wanting to crawl under the chair right now, the fact that I'm talking about her. But she submitted to the Spirit's leading. Whether it was her job or not to be praying with people, she submitted to the Spirit's leading. And that's what we're going to see today in our passage. Someone who unexpectedly submits to the Spirit's leading and steps up. Last week, Matt covered the first few verses of chapter 6, but I wanted to go back and just point out two of those verses so we can get an idea of this unexpected witness. And then we can dive into the rest of 6, all of 7, and even a little bit of 8 today. So we got a lot to cover. We have heard incredible stories about the apostles, and today is not going to be any different. We can read this and we can ask how. How do these men do such incredible things? But if we're going to ask how, what we really need to be asking is what? What are they filled with? What are we filled with? What are we full of? Our response to what God is doing is directly related to what we are filled with. Today we will get to know a man named Stephen a little bit more. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. And then verse 5. And, when they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The emphasis on Stephen's life is on fullness. He was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We see that in verse 3 here, and we'll see it again in verse 10. He's full of faith. We saw that in verse 5. And then in verse 8, it'll talk about how he's full of power. And Scripture, to be full of, means to be controlled by. This man was controlled by the Spirit of God. He was controlled by faith and wisdom and power that can only come from the Spirit. He was a God-controlled man yielded to the Holy Spirit and who was seeking to lead people to Jesus. So my prayer today is that we can all walk away with a better understanding of what it means to be Spirit-filled. So follow along again as I read the next section. Starting at verse 8, it says, And Stephen... Full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, 
all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So who is this man, Stephen? This is the first time we've heard about him in this chapter six. And in just a little bit, it'll be the last time we hear about him. But he does some pretty incredible things. We have to understand and figure out who this guy is. Well, to put it bluntly and simply, he was basically a waiter. Remember that the dispute in the beginning of chapter six was that the Hellenist widows were not getting their getting served their daily distribution of food. Like remember all the all the Christians were giving to the daily distribution and then they were giving out from this stockpile that they had. But some of the widows weren't getting enough. And the apostle said, "This isn't our job. We need to be preaching and teaching and leading people to Jesus. So appoint seven men to serve you. To wait tables to hand out the food." And in verse 3 and verse 5, we saw that one of them was Stephen. So he's a waiter. But yet, here in verse 8, he's doing signs and wonders. God may call us to wait tables or to even clean toilets or to do some sort of minuscule service or job that we think just isn't that important. But it is important because it's affecting everything But even if that, if we're called to that, we never know when the Spirit may lead and provoke us to preach a sermon in our front yard. We need to be willing to let the Spirit lead us. That tingling inside of us when someone is sharing their challenges and their struggles and their thoughts. That is the Holy Spirit poking you to speak. The Spirit empowers Stephen to do incredible things. In chapter 7, it will empower him to give one of the greatest sermons in potentially the whole New Testament. It's one of my favorite sermons. But remember, he's just a waiter. He's just a servant. Yet when he feels God leading and he's filled with the Spirit, he steps up and he preaches. We've mentioned it a few times over this series this idea of being spirit-filled, but at this point, I think we need to stop because I don't think we've truly explained what this idea of spirit-filling is. We've also mentioned the idea of being indwelt. So some of you may be sitting here asking, like, is there a difference? What is being indwelt versus what is being filled? Are they the same? Are they different? If they are different, am I indwelt? Am I filled? How do I even know? Yes, There is a difference between indwelt by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. They're they're very different acts that the Spirit does. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, at that exact moment of salvation, that is when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. This indwelling is what brings us new life in Christ. This indwelling gives us as followers of Jesus the ability to read and understand the Bible. It enriches our prayer life and empowers us to live a little bit more like Jesus every day. And it convicts us of any ongoing sin in our life. But this is something that you don't think you have. If you don't think you've ever been indwelt by the Spirit, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, this is something that can be attained by anyone at any moment. You just have to cry out to God and say, God, I need this. I need you. I need your forgiveness. Indwell me. Help me to understand this. Help my prayer life. God, I can't do this without you. 
Filling is different. Filling is a daily interaction with God. Spirit filling is submitting to the Holy Spirit's empowering and leading to do the unnatural. Submitting to the Holy Spirit's empowering and leading to do the unnatural. Notice I said unnatural, not supernatural. This is similar to the Old Testament spirit filling. Some of those men in the Old Testament, it says that they're filled with the spirit to do incredible things. Some of them, not so incredible. Just sometimes it's almost normal, everyday things they're filled to do. We can read stories of Samson being filled with the spirit and carrying a city gate up a hill and dropping on a bunch of people and freeing all of Israel from the Philistines. But a man named Bezalel from the book of Exodus was filled with the spirit to work with gold, silver, and wood. He was basically a carpenter and an artist. That's not what we first think of when we think of spirit filling. We think of supernatural acts, but this man was simply filled with the spirit to do what God had gifted him to do, to help build the tabernacle. The filling of the Holy Spirit usually does not enable us to do something supernatural or wild. Sometimes it can, but most of the time it is a day-to-day unnatural thing. For those of you who may be extreme introverts, you may be filled with the Spirit to simply say hello and talk to people, right? Like that, that takes all of your energy just to say hi to some people. (laughs) For Stephen, the the Spirit filling is directly related to his connectedness to God. Because we have to ask that. How, how can we be filled with the Spirit? Well, Stephen was spending time in prayer and in the Scripture. He was fellowshipping with other believers. He was putting himself in a position to be used by God. Our Spirit filling is also directly related to our connectedness with God. Again, it happens through prayer and being in Scripture, being here worshiping with other believers on Sunday morning and throughout the week with other believers in connection group and in Bible studies and maybe just one-on-one with other believers, being around them, helping, encouraging one another. Putting yourself in a position to be used by God. When we are filled with the Spirit, we are filled with grace and mercy, and faith, and all the fruits of the Spirit. And just like Stephen, people can typically see something different about us. When we're connected to, that, to God in that way, and we're being filled, people can see something different about us. Verse 15 says that Stephen was so connected and Spirit-filled that his face was like an angel. Other translations say that it was shining brightly. He visibly looked different to the people that were watching him. We can look different too from the culture around us. But this man who is so filled with the Spirit is not just causing people who are curious and want to know more about Jesus to take notice. 
He's also causing those in opposition to take notice. As we turn into chapter 7, we're going to see that opposition. At the end of 6, though, it talks about them starting to raise that opposition. And it, and it says that they, they made up stories about Stephen. They start lying about him. They try to get false witnesses to say that he was blaspheming the, the temple and Moses. It's interesting that the accusations against Stephen and the process by which they go about accusing him and trying him, it's very similar to Jesus. For time's sake, I am not going to read most of chapter 7. Even though I said it's one of the greatest sermons in the New Testament, we just don't have time for another 60 verses. I do encourage you, though, to go back and read through it and remember who this man is. Stephen is unfolding the history of the Israelites. From Abraham to Solomon, he basically covers half of the Old Testament in about 15, 10 to 15 minute speech. I complain when Matt tells me I got to preach on 70 verses and that I can only go 35 minutes. I'm like, that's not possible. I can't do it. Well, Stephen just showed me how to do it. Half of the Old Testament in about 10 minute speech can be done, I guess. What Stephen really wants to communicate is that he knows what he's talking about, though. He's pointing at all of these Old Testament heroes of the faith, and he's saying, I get it. I am one of you. I know these stories. I grew up with them just like all of you did. I've been told them my whole life. And he also wants to point out that throughout history, Israel has rejected God's messengers and the truth that those messengers bring. And these men that are listening to Stephen, they're rejecting that truth as well. As you go back and read this on your own, I want you to note three things. The three main points of Stephen's sermon. The promise, the people, and the pattern. Those are his three main points that he re-goes re through over and over again through those 54 verses. The promise that God has given since the beginning of time and repeated over and over again to Israelites. The people that he has used to bring that promise to light, to show it to his people. And the pattern of rejection from Israel. Over and over again, God's chosen people have rejected the truth of the Bible. And we can read this. We, we get the whole counsel of the Bible, right? So we can read Acts, and we can go back and say, how did you miss it? You guys all knew it. How did you miss this? How are you keep rejecting them? But yet, are we much different? We live in a world where it's so easy to sway to the culture around us. And to look at the truths of the Bible, we sit here and we say, yeah, this is, I believe this is truth. I believe it's without error. I believe it's God's word. But then we start to read through it. We get to a point that we may not fully agree with. We get to those parts in 1 Corinthians. It's like, I just, I just don't know if this part's relevant anymore. You know, I, don't, I think when Paul wrote this, he wasn't actually talking about our situation here. Like, he was only talking to the Corinthians, not those of us in 2018 America. So that part I just don't think is real relevant. And we take God's word and we reject the truth that is in it. 
So after several stories of Stephen pointing out this continual rejection, he turns to the church leaders, and in verse 51, he says some of my favorite words. Chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying exactly what we're thinking. He's like, you've seen it. You know this all. You've heard all the stories and you've rejected it. You've killed every single person that has been sent to you or persecuted them. Every single messenger you have persecuted or killed. And now you've killed the Messiah. These are very harsh and indicting words against these rulers and religious leaders. What do we hope our, their response is? Right? We read those words of Stephen's and we say, oh, what are they going to say? I, we hope that they're like, you're right, Stephen. You're so right. We've always messed up. We never seem to get it right. Jesus was the Messiah. We screwed up again. Help us, Stephen. Help us find the truth of the gospel. What can we do, Stephen? Unfortunately, that's not their response. Not these guys. Others in scriptures have had that response, and others in scripture will have it, but not this group. As we move into our last section for today, we can see that these listeners are filled with anger and rage. Look at verse 54 with me. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The fear that these men had that we started to see a little bit of last week has erupted into full-blown rage. Last week, Matt pointed out the officials were afraid of what the people, what the witnesses would think if they hurt John and Peter. They were, they were afraid of perception of the people watching. So that held back their anger. This week, they're so far past that. They don't even care what people think anymore. In contrast to Stephen 
who is filled with the Spirit, these men are filled with fear, anger, rage, and doubt. And these religious leaders fall right into the same cycle that Stephen is accusing them of. And he's saying, you've rejected them all, you've killed all the messengers, and here they are again. They drag him out of the city and have him stoned to death. Last week, Matt did such an incredible job of explaining flogging. Um, this week, I thought I would do a follow-up with a short explanation of stoning, because we need to understand. We do need to understand this stuff because we just read it and we're like, "What exactly does that mean?" So Leviticus twenty-four thirteen through sixteen is where you would find the law against blasphemy and the punishment of stoning and what people would be stoned for. Stoning was a typical Jewish punishment for extreme crimes, blasphemy being one of them. Stoning, they actually had a couple of ways of carrying this out, the process of stoning. One was that they would throw the accused person down a ravine that was filled with sharp rocks. And so they'd fall and hit the rocks and they'd cut them open. And, but if it didn't kill them right away, they would have a boulder nearby that they could then roll over the ravine on top of them, smashing them. We can actually see the Jewish leaders attempt to do this to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 29. It says that when he was preaching that they rushed up to him and they tried to push him over the cliff, but he snuck away and got away. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to push him over to, to stone him. If you can believe it, the other way of stoning was possibly more painful, and that's the way that we start to see it here in Acts. Sort of. It's not quite right here, but... So a hole was typically dug, and the criminal was placed in the hole. A man was buried up to his waist, a woman up to her sternum, and the sentencing judge got to throw the first stone. The stone was about the size of a tangerine. Now, yes, I know this is not a tangerine, but Hy-Vee didn't have tangerines, so we have a small orange. The lady at at Hy-Vee promised me, though, that a tangerine is about this size, just a little bit sweeter, in case you were wondering. Um, So it's just big enough, though, if it's a rock, that if we throw it, it's not going to kill him immediately, but you're going to feel it. If there was a witness to the crime, they actually got to be the first one to throw the first stone. Then the accusing judge, then all the rest of the men in the city got to take turns winging stones at the people until they died. It was an especially slow and painful death. I say that they sort of did it this way in Acts because they were actually filled with so much anger and rage, they don't go through the proper They don't even take the time to dig the hole and bury him. They just push him out of the city and start grabbing whatever they can and throwing it at him until he's dead. Stephen is incredible through this whole thing, though. He's praising Jesus. And as he dies, he cries out, begging for these men to be forgiven. Don't hold this sin against them. In the end of this section that we read, we meet a young man named Saul. And for those of you who don't know who this Saul character is, you're in for a big treat. This guy is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and we're going to see a lot more of him in the next coming chapters. Um, he's not so great right here, though, but he's going he's gonna to do some cool stuff. 
um, Saul is so enraged by Stephen's testimony that he immediately goes out to get permission to start hunting Christians. And he leads one of the first waves of Christian persecution in the church. Now we would think that that would then just make all of the disciples and the apostles just want to go into hiding. This persecution is going on, but God actually uses it to, pro- to propel the next stage of missions. We haven't talked about it yet um, as we've gone through these chapters, but if you're an outlining kind of person and you like to outline different books of the Bible, like some of you may, um, there are a few different ways that you can actually outline the book of Acts. One of them being you know, Peter and Paul, you outline the two main characters. And then with even w- underneath Paul, you can have the, the, his different missionary journeys. My preferred outline style for the book of Acts is actually found in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. Those three different locations are the main points through the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the world. This event right here at the beginning of chapter 8 is the break point between Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Completely focused on the disciples witnessing in Jerusalem. And they've been in and out of synagogues and courts, and they've been winning souls to Jesus left and right. Thousands of people are getting saved. But it's time for the next stage. They can to stop the disciples. They've told them to stop talking. They've threatened their lives. They're even killing them now. But last week, we saw uh, the high priest Gamaliel, and he said these words to them when they were trying to oppose it. He said, you know, be careful. Verse 39, chapter 5, he says, but if this is of God, the, the preaching and Jesus and all of this stuff that they're arguing about, if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. No matter what happens, no matter what challenges, sins, persecution, no matter what comes in these men's lives, nothing can stop God's spirit from moving. It may slow down from time to time, but the spirit of God cannot be stopped. That was true of these men here, and it's true of us today too. The Spirit of God cannot be stopped from moving within this church, within this community, within the world. It can be slowed down, but it cannot be stopped. As we end our time for today, I want to ask the question, what are we being filled with? Because the answer to that, what we're being filled with, is going to be what people see. So when we are out and about, when we are witnessing to people, are we being filled with fear and rejection? Or a a fear of rejection? A sense that they're not not, going to like what I have to say. 
They're going to be angry at me. They're going to yell at me. When we're witnessing to people, is that what we think? That we have some sort of rejection automatically coming? A lot of our fear of rejection and skepticism is actually based around just false perceptions. And I could do an entire sermon probably on fear of perception, but instead I'm going to use this opportunity to tell you to come to Art of Neighboring tonight, and we're going to spend an entire section of that time tonight talking about getting past that fear barrier and pushing past perception. So when we're witnessing, are we being filled with fear Are we being filled with the Spirit and filled with faith, speaking boldly, knowing that God can use whatever we say in people's lives? Do we honestly believe that when we are witnessing, and I know I say that word and throw it out there a lot, just say witnessing, but it just simply means just sharing our beliefs, sharing our story with those around us. Do we believe that when we share our story with people, that God can use that to draw people to him. I promise that he can. No matter what your story is, no matter how small you may feel that your faith is, God can use any little seed of faith and grow it into something incredible. So when we're witnessing, are we being filled with fear or letting the Spirit fill us with faith? How about when we're serving? When we're serving, are we being filled with Thoughts of inconvenience, like, I'm only doing this because nobody else will. I don't really want to be doing this. Or do we actually start to enjoy what we're doing, no matter what our service is? Sometimes it's behind the scenes. Sometimes it's cleaning toilets. Sometimes it's preaching a sermon. No matter what our service is, God uses that. So when we're serving, are we being filled with inconvenient thoughts? Are we being filled with the Spirit and letting it fill us with joy, knowing that we get to share a tiny little piece of this amazing gift that God has given us? And that we get to share that gift with the people around us. When you're at home, when you're at work, when you're anywhere, at school, wherever it may be, What are you being filled with? Whatever it is that we are being filled with can and will overflow into the lives of people around us. Whether it's fear, anger, inconvenient thoughts, those will overflow into the people around us. Or are we letting God's Spirit Fill us to the point of overflowing his grace and his mercy to everyone that is around us. We can either choose to reject the command to be filled with the Spirit, or we can stand here and say, God, I don't know what you want to do with me. I don't know how I'm supposed to do this, but you are God and I am not. Fill me with your Spirit and use me in incredible ways. So as the worship team comes back up here, I'm going to leave this here as a picture of what we can be filled with and what we can overflow to the people around us. And as we sing that song, Spirit of the Living God, I want you to just praise God and just ask him to fill you with his spirit, propel you to witness, to serve, to love the people that God has put in your life. Let's pray. Let's pray.